Hi everyone, it's David here. And before we get into this week's episode of the podcast, I wanted to highlight that we recorded this episode and some of the later episodes that you'll hear in this series before the coronavirus situation escalated. It's a worrying and uncertain time for all of us. So I just wanted to recognise that and say to each and every listener, stay well, stay healthy and try to keep positive. We'll keep making the show, if we can, throughout the crisis as it unfurls. I hope it provides some respite albeit brief from the situation. Okay, on with the show. Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode four of series seven of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. What do business leaders want from HR? How is this changing as the fourth industrial revolution unfurls? And how can business leaders and HR work together to create the right culture that drives business success, as well as a highly engaged and motivated workforce? Who better to ask than a successful business leader themselves? My guest on the Digital HR Leaders podcast today is Bruce Daisley, who for eight years led Twitter's business in the EMEA region. Bruce is also the host of the brilliant top business podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. His first book about improving work and work culture was a Sunday Times number one bestseller. I know you enjoy listening as Bruce is an engaging speaker with a unique and fascinating perspective on how to make work better. In our conversation, Bruce and I discuss why making work better for everyone is so important. We talk about the role of HR in helping to create the right culture and to help make work better. And we look at the key skills that HR needs to develop to have more impact with business leaders. We also talk about what business leaders really want from HR. And then from an employee perspective, how you can fall in love with your job again. And like with all uh, the guests on Series 7, we also look at whether AI and automation is a threat or an opportunity for HR. This episode is a must-listen for HR and business leaders looking to develop a healthy culture within their organisations, improve the employee experience and create more impact from their workforce. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for Series 7 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Cruncher is a self-service solution for workforce reporting people analytics and workforce planning. The best thing about Cruncher? It's simple. The solution is designed to guide HR professionals through their data to discover the real story. Cruncher works in over 35 countries worldwide with large companies that typically have more than 20,000 employees. Learn more about guided people analytics and their unique adoption strategies at cruncherapps.com. That's crunch, letter R, apps, all one word, dot com. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Bruce Daisley, author, um, former head of Twitter's Business in Amir, and host of the brilliant Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat podcast, to the Digital HR Leaders podcast and video series, and that's a lot of podcasts in, in one sentence. Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Fantastic. Well, it's great to have you here. Can you provide listeners with a quick introduction to you and your background and what you're currently involved in? Yeah, so uh, I was eight years at Twitter. Before that, I was four years at Google, sort of running YouTube for for the UK, for Google. Um, I've just quit, actually. So as I hit eight years, I did eight years and two days, um, two days more than Barack Obama. Uh, So different job. Um, Yeah, but as I hit eight years, I was sort of, I've been really enjoying the nuances of building business culture i guess like the the sort of the experience side of everything that you talk about 
and I've been consumed with it largely because I was a leader trying to enact changes that created strong cultures at Twitter. And as I hit eight years, things like my podcast, my book were um, just providing such entertainment and satisfaction to me. I just thought I'm going to take a bit of a break going to that. To be fair, I am also planning to do some quite intense work on climate change. So I just thought, you know, if we all want to wake up in the morning and be motivated by what we do, I thought I'm going to take a chance and do, and do two things that really passionately inspire me. Well, we might come back to the climate change yeah. stuff at the end, actually. It sounds very interesting. Um, and I think the underlying theme of what we're going to talk about today as a business leader is, is what does a business leader expect from HR and how can HR help the business create the right culture for success and, and, and actually make work enjoyable for people as well whilst you're being successful Um, and when we spoke earlier this week it's clear that you're passionate about making work better I think that's one of the taglines you have Mm. in the podcast and I hear I hear that quite frequently from HR professionals but not so often from business leaders Um, so why do you believe that making work better is so important fascinating thing for me was that my interest in this originates back to when I was doing evening work, Saturday work, to to pay my way through school and college. And I noticed that sometimes you would join a bar and there was just like a real buzz. You know, it didn't feel like work, even though you'd be putting in long hours, working late, because the the rapport, the camaraderie, the sort of esprit de corps was so strong that there's something motivating and energizing about it. And then I observed when I was when I was into a, something of more of a proper career, that sometimes those things were in place and sometimes they were absent. So I, all, I always had this fascination with those things. I was fortunate enough to go and work at um, a couple of big tech firms. And I think probably one of the tech firms I worked at, it really struck me that this might be the place that outwardly people may be regarded as one of the best places to work in the world. Yeah. And yet the first-hand experience of almost everyone that I knew who worked there wasn't that so that was like a really fascinating why did you sort of un- unlock as to why that was um for me there was a total absence of autonomy so I, th- I think one of the fascinating things that we wrestle with as companies get bigger and bigger is how do we manage the um the the need to to give people a job that they feel that they can bring some agency to, but then simultaneously not create uh, legal liabilities or not not to encounter challenges from scale. I saw something that someone told me that their friend works at Oracle. I was having a, a, a discussion, and they, they, um, the advice given there was that no one was uh, allowed to follow each other on Facebook. largely because what it would inform you about understanding someone's private life then might have a consequent impact on the way that you interacted with them. Or Google have been told by repute, not in my time there, not to hug colleagues. Now, what you see about that is that what you're effectively observing is that a lawyer has said this mitigates risk. And no doubt, this mitigates risk. If no one has any physical contact with each other, and if any physical contact is sanctionable, you've breached the rules, then, of course, absolutely, it's far easier to manage. But it also talks of creating a version of work that has an absence of humanity to it. Mm. And I was more fascinated. Was there any way that you could create system thinking from the inside um, that would enable work to feel motivating, inspiring, filled with autonomy. 
Uh, and so I was, I was just really taken with that. When I first set up Twitter in the UK, there was, you know, we could have fit in a minibus. There was sort of, there was a handful. Of, never, there was never any need. Probably not in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> but imagine like the Scooby van, the, like the, yeah. the mystery van in Scooby Doo. We, we could have travelled around in that. And so my feeling was very strongly, okay, I want to build a culture that I would love to work in. Yeah. And it sets yourself a challenge. Now, one of the things that's of interest is that, or that you can be distracted by, is that it's very easy to build a good culture with 12 people, with 15 people, with 30 people. And you start testing how effective that is when you get to 60, 100. And that became the fascination for me. Everyone used to uh, rather wonderfully come from our other offices and say, wow, there's like a real mojo, there's a real buzz to the London office, that if we could only capture it, we'd, we'd love that to be cross-pollinated to, to across the rest of the company. But the really interesting thing for me as a leader was that we reached a stage probably three years ago where it went decidedly sour. You know, yeah. Within one year, 40% of the team uh, left. And we had a lot of people phoning with, uh, leaving with no job to go to. Now, as a leader, you know, you, you get you get signals that are of varying intensity and strength. But when you've got a lot of people resigning with no job to go to, you know that something has gone fundamentally wrong. And I think ultimately, when we thought about it, what it came down to is that we'd breached, tr- uh, let me say I, let, you know, let me own responsibility for this. I'd created actions where there was a breach of trust. So our financial situation was in far worse state than we than I probably wanted to let on. Um, that that lack of transparency becomes it it can lead to teams quietly catastrophizing. So teams recognizing that what I'm being told has a dissonance from what appears to be happening. Yeah. And so as a consequence, if you've then combined that um, lack of safety with burnout. And people feeling like I'm working 80 hours a week, 70 hours a week, and I'm not sure I trust what's happening. I think those two things are like nitroglycerine. They're, they're sort of they're such a tinderbox. They're so explosive. And I think what that propelled me to do is I thought, okay, well, I was very willing to take the plaudits when people said this London Twitter office was, you know, best case, best practice. You know, the, the people were being recruited around the world. Now it's time for me to take responsibility for what's gone wrong. And I made sure that my HR professional, my, my uh, sort of HR business partner sat next to me. We were sort of partners in crime in, yeah. in how, can we, how can we make sure that every single thing is about HR and, and leadership being as one, you know, yeah. the, the daily dialogue rather than, interacting via meetings this was the the level of rapport that you get when you just got put two people utterly in sync with each other sitting together really and i guess that transparency and trust in that relationship but also with the workforce is so important as you said if if people start to lose trust then they'll they'll put two and two together and make five so even if the situation for the from a business perspective isn't as good as it perhaps was if you're not telling them what's happening and what the potential impact could be. Maybe they, they actually make it to be worse, and then they make the decisions, as you said. They, they yeah. do leave without a job to go to. Because yeah. It's really fascinating. The um, the chief executive Twitter is like a polymathic, incredible 
uh, incredibly accomplished guy, uh, Jack Dorsey, sort of invented Twitter in his 20s and now is the chief executive of two businesses. But one of the things that he models as a really instructive pattern of behavior is that he's um, almost unflinchingly honest about things. So let me give you some examples. We've had a couple of data breaches where one example was it seemed that a certain number of million Twitter users' passwords were stored in an unhashed status. What that means is that somewhere the passwords were stored, but they weren't encrypted. Right. Now, there was no evidence that anyone had accessed it. But we, he said, okay, so we need to tell people. And we need to tell people straight away. Now, very clearly, the legal advice you'd get in that situation is you don't need to tell people, best not to tell people. We were also uh, told that it could be stock price damaging if you reveal this. And yet, nevertheless, despite both of those little bits of advice, people coming in saying you don't need to do these, could have a downside impact. Jack's whole philosophy was, okay, well, let's work on the basis we're telling people. So we need to tell them ideally tomorrow, if not tomorrow, the day after. And what that does is that it models a pattern of behavior where you start thinking, okay, so the right thing to do is honesty. And then it's just a question of when we do the honesty. Another one, we transitioned from um, publishing our monthly audience to our daily audience. Now, the thing that everyone in the organization knew was that our daily audience was lower than some of the conjecture externally and probably lower than a a few um, other competitor products. And, but his take, so again, People came along and said, let's not do this. It's bad news. The sales team didn't want it. The investment team didn't want it. And his belief was, okay, if we don't do it now, tell me when we're going to do it and let's work to that. And in fact, again, um, actually sort of planning for that, it led to a cycle of bad news for 24 hours. And then broadly, the second day's coverage was, oh, this feels like in deeply filled with integrity. And I think that was the lesson for me when it came to um, practices about our own business fortune. People are often more able to take bad news if they can if they can contextualize it, and if it paints a picture of what the job to be done is, than if you if they discover it themselves. So bad news is generally going to get out, but if you hear it as someone whispers to you by the kettle. It's significantly worse than you hear it by your chief exec or your your regional manager standing up and telling you it. So I think that is a really important lesson for me. Hearing news from the top rather than over a glass of wine after work is a really important way to understand how that message is then taken in. But obviously... In, in certain companies, you can have a glass of wine after work, but you can't hug. <laughs> <laughs> fascinating that is, though, isn't it? it is, because it is you, you can definitely see the the steps where how they got to that. But I think as soon as you remove any agency from people to behave in a human way, it starts making work feel deeply depersonalised. I think. Well, it's almost like, yeah. I mean, it's a bit big brotherish to be perfect. Yeah, it is. You, you it can is. do this, you can't do that, and this yeah. and this. And you just said it's just down to risk. It is. About, you know, having a lawsuit at the end of the day. Yeah, so. because there's fundamental truths that we all understand about work. If people have got a close friend at work, they often report they enjoy their job. If people feel like they've got a good relationship with their manager, again, they feel like they've got a good job. And these are actually far more 
soft emotional aspects of our job than we'd probably want to admit when we're describing ourselves as rational rational yeah. adults. Which leads us quite nicely on to the next question. You gave a hint of it, I think, um, when you were talking about how you sat on a daily basis with your HR business partner. How did you work with HR um, at Twitter, both locally and perhaps with HR at corporate HQ as well in, in, in the US? You know, and what role did they play in terms of, of, of helping set the culture within the, within the organisation? Yeah, my feeling is very strongly that the closer that those functions can be owned to the, the point of, of, of sort of experience, the, the better. So I think, you know, my best relationships have always been when there's been someone who has power in each office or power in each region who can, can get things done. You know, I've always felt HR is a top table, C-suite job, and the closer that the... I've always had my best relations with HR and observed the best culture when I've sat next to the, the HR person that I'm working with. Um, so for me, it was like the, the, vital, the, the vital relationship to maintain. And in terms of culture, obviously, I think leaders really are responsible for culture, but obviously HR are enablers in helping filter that through the, the organisation or, or the, the London office, as it were. How did that, how did that kind of work? Yeah, so um, we, uh, I mean, I was running Europe, Middle East and, and Africa. Broadly, we've got offices in sort of the, the bigger countries in, in those spaces. Um, and there's, there's a degree of, um, there's a degree of listening. So like the, the HR function was very attuned to listening. And we broadly had a cohort of employees that were, uh, some of them were engineering, over half of our uh, staff were in what we called engineering products and design, so people who create things. Um, there's a lot of sales, so commercial people, a uh, few sort of very scattered group of different functions. So th there, was <laughs> there was actually different needs for, for different course, functions, yeah. and it's just about trying to adapt to that. We had 70 different nationalities, so the, the service that we were pro providing quite often was trying to interpret the consequence of Brexit and try to, yeah, familiar, familiar territory for a lot of people, but trying to message that to 70 different nationalities who might have more or less concern about what it meant for them. It'd be great to hear some examples. Obviously, when you, when you started Twitter and Amir, as you said, you were in the, the Scooby mystery machine there, and then obviously rolled it out over so many different countries and 70 different nationalities. So if there are some examples that you could share with the listeners around how you work very closely with HR either to solve a, a, a problem or, or enable, enable some of that growth? I think one of the things that we were setting out to do was, especially when we were, when we were in the, the remedial action of trying to get it back to being in a good place, we tried to create very clear norms. So we tried to establish the ways that we wanted to work. So when we were in that catch-up stage, the things that we were observing was that there were very high levels of burnout. And that was largely because probably the we hadn't we hadn't adequately modeled the way we wanted people to work. And the inevitable state that a lot of people find themselves in, especially in a highly connective environment where these teams in San Francisco at the end of Slack messages, or you know, there's, there's always an email to answer. We hadn't modeled what good working looked like looks yeah. like. And so 
Um, by some estimations, you know, sort of, I, I observed that a lot of American companies that require connectivity, people are clocking up a 70-hour week. And we would definitely... Especially with that eight-hour time absolutely. difference. Absolutely. You know, and, and we'd, we'd see it in execs coming over to London. They'd say, wow, I didn't realise you did a full day's work and then people expect you to do another day's work. And it's sort of, people often only empathise when they experience firsthand. And so we start, we set about thinking, how can we model um, the version of culture that we want? So let me give you an example. I created like this brief manifesto, this new work manifesto. One of the things in there was trying to model norms that people should expect to have working 40 hours a week was a really interesting, interesting one for me because firstly, um, tech is full of misdirections. There's no shortage of people who will say, from Elon Musk down, that you know their success comes from working 100 hours a week. And so consequently, when you've got those role, role models, it's very easy for that to pervade the way that everyone's working. I, I set about in this manifesto saying, okay, 40 hours is enough. So what does that look like? Well, with my HR professionals, when I was sitting down and we would do a twice annual promotion cycle. And so if anyone was given uh, their their packet, their promotion case, if the, someone's case for being promoted was this person works late every night. In fact, we we tended to, we will always push back on that without exception, but we tended then to think, right, we've got a job to do with our manager because it's clear that the norms that we're trying to establish are, are the, the experience that, that an employee is having is being let down because their manager isn't, sort of shining the light in the right direction. So those were the sort of things, trying to create norms of what are good patterns of behavior and bad patterns of behavior. And especially when you're in the zone where I think a lot of us are experiencing burnout. I went into to one charity, contacted me and said, is there any chance you can come in based on all your experience of running culture? Can you come in and chat? And they described to me a scenario that sounds incredibly familiar. They said, we tried to have a culture reboot meeting. We, a three-hour meeting it went into everyone's calendars. No one came because everyone's got too many meetings already. Yeah. And I think that's it. You know, my feeling as a curious outsider, as I see myself, sort of adjacent, this is why I always listen to your podcast, I see myself as someone who... I'm not a practitioner, but I'm a sort of curious person trying to understand the tools of the of the profession. And what I realized very quickly was for all of the actions that I might try to take to improve team cohesion, to improve um, sort of creativity, connectivity, it seems like the levels of burnout that we're witnessing are preventing any of that sticking. Yeah. So very often... Um, and I'm always cautious on the, of this, but very often, especially if you exist in the tech community, the solution for anything is proposed to be to come in app form. So someone will say, oh, we hear that everyone's having too many meetings. We've got a new app that we're using, right? And this is what literally what happens all the time. Or and I hear what everyone's saying about um, not being able to relax. We've got everyone and we've bought everyone access to a new app. And I'm not critical of that. You know, the apps have transformed our lives. We love apps. But I'm always cautious that the solution is technology. And maybe it's the fact that having been inside technology, the competitive advantage I've got is that I witnessed that that's not the case. Mm. Um, but so my feeling was always, okay, so how can we 
you know, when I was sitting down writing a book, it was like, albeit I wanted to write something about workplace culture and how anyone can change culture. And yet the first 12 things in it are personal interventions to feel less burnt out. Because back to that charity I went to, they there's no point telling those people that, you know, they should feel more bonded to their team members when their experience of work is they're in an open plan office beset with constant interruptions. They have 16 hours a week of meetings. Yeah. They have 200 emails. Effectively, work is what they're sort of trying to squeeze into their evenings on the sofa. Work is what they're doing on the train. And, you know, unless you address all of those things, the experience of work for those people can never escape that, that no. Bermuda Triangle of burnout. And I guess, as you said, it's it's not it's less a technology thing. It's a behavioural thing. It's a it's a leadership thing. It's a manageable thing. It's a cultural thing. And I think it's great what you're saying is that you know, when you're looking at the promotion slate, and if someone one of the justifications are oh, they're always working late, mm. and actually that's that's as you said, that's something that the manager's doing wrong. Either the manager's forcing people to work late because they give them too much work, or they see someone working late and just saying. Actually, that's quite good. At, yeah, you know, and they just don't say anything. They say go home. You know, you're supposed to be doing forty hours a week, not seventy. You know? Absolutely. And I think my my take on it is that with all the talk about employee experience, unless we're candid about the amount of hours people are spending in meeting rooms, unless we're candid about the the fact that we don't treat work as zero sum. So normally, what will happen? The, the amount of organisations I've gone into, and I've said the average British. British person spends 16 hours a week in meetings and almost without exception people will go it's way more here right so that's interesting yeah. because if we're spending 20 hours a week in meetings and I think most of us would be candid especially if you're in a big organization you're quite often in meetings where you don't know everyone's name yeah and you don't know what that guy over there does and that woman you've seen her twice but she's on a different floor and and we sort of we're in a zone where naturally as humans we stop paying attention and yet unless that's captured in your employee experience understanding then for a lot of people it's no wonder they feel um they don't feel any autonomy because they feel like they're being held hostage for three working days a week in meetings that they don't feel that they can meaningfully contribute so my feeling was very resolutely we've got to be honest about those things just as i was leaving twitter we were on a major initiative to try and abolish half to three quarters of all meetings. Largely because, you know, that old thing that started as a joke and now has become a truism, that most meetings could be an email and most emails could be a text, you know, like that, that thing that um, we set about thinking, what can we do to abolish it? And so there were, there were two strands of action. I, um, there was a lot of people, especially in the engineering side of things, who had introduced silent meetings. And in fact, fascinatingly, I had had a long chat. My colleague, if anyone's interested in silent meetings, there's a medium post that you'll get by searching silent meeting manifesto. One of my uh, ex-colleagues created it. And the idea of that is that it originates from something that Jeff Bezos introduced, uh, Amazon, where he said, um, he said, so much of meetings is performative. He said, so number one, we only have meetings when there's a decision to be made. A weekly catch up isn't a meeting. Uh, we only do them when we have decisions. And he realized that a lot of men use PowerPoint as part of the art of performance. They will come in, they will, they will blag and bluster their way through. So he said, so no PowerPoint, and, and we're going to read the document. So normally he creates a four-page document, or you, the person who wants a decision creates a four-page document, and you read it co- 
collectively in the meeting. The silent part. The silent part. The way we adapted that is we read it on our laptops and people add comments as they go. So then you have someone, and in the this blog post you'll read this, but uh, then you have someone who runs the meeting. So the person will say, uh, it's a real skill this is, they'll say, there seem to be three issues with the decision today. Let's go through the, each of those in turn. As an experience of a meeting, it's transformational. I bet. Yeah, it's tra- it just doesn't, like you leave a meeting going, Right, I feel rather than sort of hear someone drone on about their PowerPoint for an hour, I actually feel informed about what went on. And normally the meetings are a lot quicker. So we we were sort of going through, I think, attempts to experiment and innovate with things that were patently broken. Uh, I was really intrigued by trying to bring, you know, email hasn't changed in 30 years really i mean marginally changed you can delay sending sometimes now um meetings are this broken format where most of us are reluctant to change them so i I was just inspired that we were finally bringing a bit of innovation to things that are evidently broken well i like the idea of the silent meeting i'm gonna give it a go you know to read that guy's blog uh, medium post the silent meeting manifesto beautifully illustrated cartoons it's it's just an interesting way to try and do something different. Like anything, I'm a big advocate for walking meetings as well. Like anything, the first time you do these things, you've got to bake in the fact that you're going to feel deeply uncomfortable. Mm. So accept the fact that the first time you do it, it's going to be awkward. There's lots of things in life that that's the case. But once you accept that and you say, we're going to try this for at least four weeks, and you know that's what we're doing, after four weeks, you'll be like, oh, okay, this is actually working a lot better. See, I worked in France for a while. Okay. And they do like, well, the company I worked in liked me. It was a meeting culture. And, um, and I got fed up with being in meetings because, as you said, you, you, don't, you can't do any work. Right. And then you've got less and less time to actually do the work that you've got to do. So in the end, I would turn around and say, okay, what's the objective of the meeting? Um, why do you want me in the meeting? What's my role? And um, I can't remember. Those are the two main, the two main things I asked. And if I couldn't. People could articulate what those were. Yeah. To say, I can't come. Power play, that is, though, isn't it? Because Elon Musk himself. Yeah, exactly that. Because Elon Musk said, uh, if he doesn't value a meeting, he gets up and leaves. Absolutely. You're, you're a billionaire several times <laughs> over. Easier, <laughs> We've got to imagine. So like when I was writing my book, I was thinking, well, I'm thinking about a 28-year-old woman because she's focused on wanting to do her best job, but is surrounded with all this this sort of emperor's new clothes lunacy that no one's willing to say this doesn't work and i think when you start from the perspective of zero power then solving those problems has a different spin on it slightly yeah i think you're right so i i love that that concept and so perhaps we should delve in a bit deeper on the podcast at some point um as a business leader i mean give some some indication what do you believe the role of HR is in helping to actually do what is the role of HR? What do, what do you want from HR as a business leader? Yeah, for me, it was about um, implementing strategy. I think so often we use HR as the cleanup police. We use HR as um, HR is sort of brought into a situation to, to get us out of a spot or to, to try to deal with you know, underperformance or to, to, to deal with hygiene matters. And for me, HR, if, if companies talk about be, their put people being their secret asset 
or you know their culture being something that propels them to 20% better performance than their peer group, then HR have to be involved in all of those decisions and setting those norms, trying to bring those norms to life. The challenge is the um, very often the the way that HR is treated is often it's not given uh, it's not given the seat as the most important voice in the in the room. It's given the final say on logistics, yeah. and that is a fundamental difference for me. When the best relationships I've had with HR is when we've they've been in the room when we've been designing strategy. They've been in the room when we've been thinking about what we needed in the next cohort of people we were going to hire. So they're involved in creating strategy rather than just delivering it. And what you generally find is that with HR professionals, firstly, when you give them that opportunity, they often jump at it. But so often... Um, so often they've never been afforded that no, that position, no, it's a challenge. and and that's the interesting thing. So what you often find, and I've observed, is that quite often you can bring people who've been in that disempowered HR world into an environment where you're trying to use them systematically to build something, and they often go back to sort of previous patterns yep. of behaviour, and uh, and you know. A couple of organisations I've worked in, I worked in a, a magazine publishing business before where HR was very much top table, chief exec would work with, it, it was styled as head of culture at the time, people and culture at the time, but the relationship there was night and day compared to when I, my, my, one of my in-between jobs. Um, really, really instructive for me, it, it helped inform my own take and when I was thinking of what's the best relationship that I want I found that when when we brought our HR professional our HR leader a brilliant woman called Caro um, when we brought her on the the strategy sessions not only was it a voice in the room that helped made us honest about some of the things that we were suggesting but also just meant that th there wasn't that gap between strategy and execution there wasn't that dissonance where what we're trying to do was just not remotely matched to the people that we had so i think you alluded to some of it in in your previous answer you know from again from a business leader perspective what are some of the skills that the hr needs to develop to have more impact uh, in the business and actually as you say help devise and strategy rather than just implement it yeah uh, just uh, business sense, so you know business acumen. I think the the most critical thing for me is a a directness and a transparency. That you know it, it is a, a psychological safety, but the HR professional more than anyone needs to be the person who has to tell you this is not working or um, something's gone wrong. If there's not that, if there's not that fully permeable relationship where everything is is transparent and everything is up for discussion mm. i think that's where it goes wrong we you know we had a couple of cultural issues in in different countries and they always came from a bit of behavior that was being observed that someone didn't want to flag because they were worried that if they flagged it it would it would have repercussions on them as much as anything. And whenever we had that 
business, the full business understanding combined with direct, transparent communication. Yeah. It was always the, the, the best. HR professional, more than anyone, is the, uh, is the person who, if, if you do it well, can be your ears on the ground, almost without exception. Every team at the, at the entry level, the team will be presented with the, trying to deal with the realities of management decisions that don't make sense at the customer level. Yeah. So, you know, they're out there, they've been given a message, the people they're dealing with, you know, it might be uh, press members of the media, it might be sales partners, it might be whoever it is, um, there's, there's a recognition that there's been bad decisions made up the chain. And HR, more than anyone, is the this function that will help you bring that that level of understanding that exists at your lowest level of the hierarchy, to use that sort of uh, hierarchical nature, but bring that level of understanding to the top. And you can only work when there's honesty. Particularly when I guess they bring data to the table yeah. as well, which again, as you probably know from listening to some of the podcasts, can, has been a challenge for the function in the past. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, yeah, I think... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, more than, you know, we, we sort of, I've worked in organisations that are obsessed about data and obsessed yeah, you about... You mentioned at least one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, where, you know, everything is about, unless you can bring data, it's not a discussion, it's it's not going to be something that we even debate. Um, so, you know, where, where you can bring data, I think it's critical. One of the things, evidently, is that you can't bring data to every situation, no. especially in, in HR. And that shouldn't be... That shouldn't be the barrier to you not discussing very important issues, I think. Of course, because you can always go out and collect the yeah. data yeah. to, to support the issue. So you're also the host of, um, I don't know how you managed to do everything you did, but you did, um, the host of the Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat podcast, which is uh, proved to be very popular. Um, and it's all about making work better, essentially, based on the passion that you did mm. at the start. You know, if you had to sort of, what are the key learnings that you, you've 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 got from 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 the guests that you've been on the show or the topics that, you, that you've covered that you feel would be good to share with our audience? Yeah, more than anything else, I started that podcast from the perspective of we were in the lowest ebb. So three years ago, the culture was in a bad place. And it might have therefore seemed a bizarre decision. You know, every, the wheels are falling off. Yeah. How on earth are you starting a podcast about making work better? And it was it was almost transparently because I was trying to make work yeah. better for the people around me. So um, what you'll discover about that is that my voice is is pretty muted in it. You know, it's very rarely me giving my opinions. It's more me picking the mind of people. Yeah. And generally, what I've found is that I become fascinated with the works of academia about fixing work that never reach people in jobs. So I, I became bewitched with these um, incredible people originated from Massachusetts Institute of Technology who produced these people meters, these little badges that everyone in the office would wear. And what they were very quickly able to do was track what was going on in workplaces. Yeah. In fact, the professor behind it, a guy called Sandy Pentland, he said within three weeks, they knew what was a creative office and what was an uncreative office, just from the data. Interesting, right. What was, what was the thing that pointed out to him? He said, face-to-face -face conversation seemed to be the thing that, that was common in creative offices that wasn't happening, <coughs> that wasn't happening in uncreative offices. 
really interesting. So you start, data starts pointing you in a direction that you didn't even know you wanted to go in in that direction. And so for me, that's been um, what I've been so fascinated with. I chatted to a wonderful woman at Carnegie Mellon University about collective intelligence. And I guess all of us in our jobs now, creativity is collective, teamwork is collective. And she did a piece of work trying to understand why are some teams more collectively intelligent than other teams? One of the things she found was that there's a test, an autism test, uh, created by Simon Baron Cohen, so Sasha Baron Cohen's oh, yeah. cousin. Yeah, yeah. But it was a test for autism. It's called Reading the Mind in the Eyes test. It's now sometimes, if you search for it, it's called the Collective Intelligence Test. And what they discovered was um, autistic people tr- struggle to read people's emotions. But your performance in this test as a non-autistic adult strongly governs how good your contribution is to a team's collective effort. Interesting. Really interesting, right? And so we all did this test at work. Uh, a, a woman, Neve, the marketing director, sat next to me. She got 36 out of 37. I don't know why the test sat at 37. She was delighted. Uh, she demanded to be carried around the office. And everyone, <laughs> and someone else got 10 out of 37. Right, okay. Why? He was sort of the blunt, grumpy guy. And you start going, okay, this is really interesting because this is a tool, number one, that anyone can use. And not that it gives you direct answers, but it can pollinate a conversation. Because then you can sit there and go, okay, so we've got some people who seem to be really good at reading the room and their collective intelligence is therefore higher. There's other people who don't read the room, but they've got sort of a maverick input. So maybe they help originate ideas that the rest of the team, right, fascinating. So um, the podcast is sort of non-linear in the sense that I often don't know what I'm going to be discussing. Uh, You know, one of the ones coming up is I'm really taken with how Microsoft reinvented their culture. Mm. Biggest company in the world, but regarded as bombastic. Steve Balmer was the boss. You know, this almost sort of pantomime alpha male character. And then they transitioned to Satya Nadella and they've gone back to being the biggest company in the world again, yeah. but with a very different persona. And, and so I've done an episode where I've gone and chatted to three or four experts on that to try and understand, can any company go on that journey? Can any company reinvent their culture? If they can, what are the specific actions they need to take? So very much I'm a uh, sort of a lay person's um, curious mind trying to understand how to improve culture. Well, it's the same way. It's anything. Learning is so important because mm. then you can take that learning and apply it in your own workplace and, and everything. And it, what's interesting about the MIT stuff you mentioned, Sandy Pendland, um, one of the probably the biggest voices in, in people under six is Ben Weber, who was one of Sandy's Absolutely, yeah. students, you know, and the work he's doing at Humanize with those yeah. is he's, he's right at the kind of the pioneering edge, I think, of people analytics. So very interesting. You've also found time to publish a book. Um, Sunday Times bestseller, The Joy of Work, the biggest selling business hard book of 20, 2019. Very impressive. And the book provides 30 ways to fall in love with your job again. So I'm not going to get you to talk about all 30 because obviously you want people to buy the book. But can you give an example of two ways that how people can fall in love with their job again? Yeah, I guess the first thing I mentioned um, to you was that what I discovered was to try and get people to love their job again, they needed to take a, they needed to be able to exhale. They needed yeah. to almost sort of get themselves out of this overwhelmed 
situation that a lot of us find ourselves in. And just to sort of put that graphically, the average working day has, in, has increased in the last 15 years from seven and a half hours a day to nine and a half hours a day. And it's generally in the areas we don't me measure. So if you're sitting there and you're scolded by your partner for, for answering an email while there's a TV show on. Most of the time. Right. Or if you're the person who's just answering this quick email. Just, I'm just answering this quick email. Guilty again. Right. <laughs> As you're out to, to have a pizza or whatever. Then you're probably one of the people who's seen the workday go up. And so my first feeling was, right, what can any of us do to just push back a little bit against that? taking a lunch break. In aggregate, all of our lunch breaks in the course of a year account for six weeks of vacation. Wow. So it's no wonder if you get into the habit of taking a lunch break two or three days a week, you feel better for it. In fact, the, the best thing you can observe is people's energy levels are better on Saturday morning if they take a lunch break, really interestingly. But the thing probably I became most passionate about was the evidence behind laughter. Because I think... Most of us, if we recollected a job we loved, remembering times we laughed would be probably one of the first associations we have with that job. Yeah. You know, I'm guessing, but it's, it's almost always the case. And yet, these, I, I had a job, uh, a job along the way where my boss said to me, now's not the time to be seen laughing. We were in difficult times. We'd just, you know, job cuts around the corner. Don't be seen laughing. And so this became, as I was sort of setting about, trying to find all the academic papers, trying to find all the research on things, I thought, right, I'm going to find out the truth on that. Because honestly, I expected that there was some degree of truth in what he was saying. And what I discovered was it was completely the opposite. The world's leading expert on laughter is a guy called Robert Provine. A brilliant guy. He's, sort of, he's written books on it. And the way that he describes laughter, he's, he says laughter is like an impoverished bird song, meaning what do birds sing for? Birds sing to connect with other birds. Laughter is how we connect with other mm. humans. That's really interesting because then laughter is less about you sort of dissipating some joy but and more about you signaling connection to other people. And as soon as you start learning, hearing that, you go, okay, so a team that laughs together, their endorphin levels go through the roof and they feel more cohesion. And so if your team, are maybe they're remote, you know, the experience of remote work is obviously a top of mind for a lot of people, a lot of people now, or maybe they're remote, or maybe they're in back-to-back -back meetings, and maybe there was a time and a place where people used to go to the pub after work, and maybe that's less the case now for, for lots of probably quite good reasons. Um, but those moments forged connectivity. And so if you understand that when a team laughs together, it's not like this indolent waste of time, but it's a moment of strengthening the team. Yeah. You know, resilience often comes from laughter. I chatted to someone who'd been in a war hospital in Afghanistan, and he said the amount of laughter in an operating theatre where you're dealing with the most gravely serious situation, the, the amount of laughter would look bad to outsiders. And yet it was the way for them to reset their stress levels and to connect with each other in adversity that you or I would never have to experience. And, and as soon as you start understanding those things, you're like, okay, so laughter could be our secret weapon. Yeah. Laughter could be like the, the way that we build our resilience, we build our connection to our colleagues. And so rather than my old boss saying, now's not the time to be seen laughing, it should have been like, okay, times are tough. 
but let's make sure we don't give up on laughing. Right well, now. yeah, and it's interesting because everyone refers back, you know, in Britain to the the spirit of the of the Blitz during the, mm. the Second World War, and actually there there was a essence of laughter, you could call it gallows humour, mm. perhaps, but that certainly pervaded and kept people's spirits up. Um, and actually, I think another thing about laughing, I was once told uh, by a trainer, Stuart Lowry, I can remember his name because he was such a good trainer, um, and he said to me, if you're laughing, you're learning. And I, and I actually genuinely believe yeah. that because I think you open yourself up for, for more things. Don't think it's just the endorphins that, that go. But back to like when people used to come to the Twitter office from other offices, it was the laughter they observed. They said, we're really surprised how much laughter is in the office. And, and probably for me, as I'm thinking about what I enjoy about my work, laughing every day is just an indelible part of that. Well, it's very important, isn't it? Which leads us on to the last question, which actually moves from something that's very human to something which is perhaps less so. Um, so we've, we've changed the, the, the question that we're asking everyone at the end of the, of the podcast episode now. AI and automation, do you see them as an opportunity or a threat to HR? Yeah, very re resolutely an opportunity. I think, you know, um, the, the more that we can learn in Twitter, like we were observing various things where um, the we, we could observe things at scale that no human could ever do. So let me give an example: fifty-four percent of any accounts that are suspended now on Twitter, no one has, no human has ever seen them. That means that the first-hand experience of Twitter for people becomes better because they're not having to report this abuse, they're, they're seeing yeah. it. And one of the things that we can observe in employee engagement is if people stop going to social events, if people stop engaging with meetings, if they stop interacting in certain ways, it's a really clear signal that they're detaching themselves from the business. If people stop going to the social parts of work, generally I think the, the data suggests that they leave the company within 12 months. Wow, no human would ever really be able to spot that. But it starts giving you signals about, okay, so this boss might seem superficially like he or she's doing a good job, but there seem to be signals of disengagement here. Yeah. And humans just can never spot those things. So I think the, the secret with everything is that it needs to be done well. The amount of people who have pitched me AI recruiting tools or AI... In fact, I tested one myself, um, where the I think the critical element within all of this is being excuse me the critical element within all of this is being being able to see inside the algorithm and try and understand what are the the things that are directing the 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 hunches the instincts within it. But I think it's a it's a massive opportunity. Great, well, I'd agree with you on that. Bruce, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for being on the show. Um, how can people stay in touch with you? Yeah, all of my stuff is on my website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Um, and I, I answer every message I receive on LinkedIn and Twitter. Fantastic. And the culture, the, the climate change? Yeah, you know, like here's the strange thing. I'm, I'm in this situation right now. I was a Greenpeace collector when I was 15. Uh, I couldn't get into pubs when all my mates were going into pubs. And so my energy went in collecting for Greenpeace. And I've just decided now that if I give a year of my life to dedicating my energies to climate change, who knows what might happen? So my plan is I want to extend that to 18 months, to two years, yeah. to, try and, to try and keep going. But... Um, I feel really passionately that unless a few of us start doing something, the moment might pass. 
You might be trying. Well, I expect to see you alongside Greta Thunberg maybe at the UN next year. Bruce, thank Thanks you very so much for being on the show. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out myhrfuture.com for the latest learning and news on the future of HR. And you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter there too. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Peter Hinson. You won't want to miss that one and I'll see you next time.